Let's bow together as we pray and then look into the Word. Lord, we started off this morning by calling ourselves and calling each other to rejoice in you. Whether we're facing nights of tears or sunshines of joy, we pray, Father, that you might teach us to find joy and delight in you. We know we live in a world where there are many sorrows, many things that are out of line and many sources of pain and suffering, particularly a lot of an extensive amount of broken relationships, Lord, in our world. And we pray that you might uh, help us to find joy in you, the God who is the great reconciler, the God who is the great healer, the God who is the one who transforms and changes people on the inside. We pray that you might help us, Father, to, filled with joy, hear your voice speaking to us today, helping us to find greater insight and direction in our lives, Lord, to see how we can make a difference according to your grace at work in us through your Spirit to better achieve the goals for which you have for us in this world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a teenager, about the time when I probably had my driver's license maybe first little, little short while after I first got my driver's license or when I had my learner's permit, I can remember that our family owned an older car and that that car was parked sort of on a side spot where we parked additional cars and it developed an unusual problem. Uh, this older car had a functioning electrical system, it had a functioning cooling system, it had a functional engine that ran just fine. Just one problem. The universal joint on the car broke. Now you're saying, what does that mean? Well, universal joint, which I learned at that time in my life, I didn't know what it was otherwise. We would start the car and the car wouldn't do anything. We come to find out, look underneath the car, and there is this joint between what's coming out of the engine, which is turning as a result of the engine's power, and then there's this rod that goes back further to the rear axle to make the wheels turn. Well, the joint here broke, and so you have this thing sitting on the ground. So being the goofy guy that I was at the time, I thought, well, this is cool. So I would sit in the car, dreaming about driving all over the place, and I'd have the key, I'd turn it on, and engine's running just fine, and put the emergency brake on, everything's not going to go anywhere. And then I would pull it in to drive, and I'd just make believe like I was driving. And what was cool about it was the odometer was moving because the it is engaged when they're in drive and even though the wheels are not moving that part of the uh that part of the uh, car was still functioning and so here's the odometer going round and round and round i'm just sitting there acting like i'm driving down the highway until my father found out that i was doing that and said stop doing that you're making more miles on the car we're not even using it anyway the point was that the car was unable to transfer the power the whole reason that they have the engine designed is to transfer power to the rear wheels so that the car would move forward and transport people from one place to another. I've been thinking about that analogy a lot because I'm wondering if it could not be true on some level that God's people and the church in general could be similar to that car if we're not careful in that we have people who are 
busy and we're meeting together and we're doing lots of things and we're very active and we have lots of programs going on and we're very much, there's a lot going on under the hood, but it, could it be possible that what's going on under the hood is not being transferred to the rear wheels, which is moving the church in the direction to which God really wants the church to be moving in, and that is the key, making disciples. Could it be that we are at times having a broken universal joint in the church if we lose sight of the Great Commission? Now, as you know, we've been camping on this text for a while. We've been slowing down and really looking at the end of Matthew 28. I hope you have it there in front of you if you want to just remind yourself as our memory verse. Hopefully you have it already in your heart and mind that the key verb there is to make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20. Make disciples of all nations. And how do we do that? Well, it says that there are several ministry essentials. Jesus said You've got to make sure that these ministry essentials are in place so that people can be truly made into his disciples. And that includes the idea of going and baptizing and, indeed, teaching. Now, disciple-making begins with Jesus' followers bringing the gospel to those who live in the kingdom of darkness. There needs to be a seeking out and a taking to others the gospel. That involves you and me and what we do in our everyday life and in some, uh, in some ways going in places that are not the normal everyday place. It means crossing over hurdles and going and even to other cultures. Secondly, disciple making requires disciples to give public testimony about their repentance and their faith in Jesus Christ and their union to Christ and union to the body of Christ in the waters of baptism. And so we've looked at that as a second essential ministry component of making disciples. Now thirdly, and last week we noticed a little bit about the disciples are to be made through the process of ongoing instruction. Where we take and uh, so, so that a convert would develop a pattern of life in which that person's life becomes characterized by obedience to Jesus's teaching. Disciples clearly are learners of Christ. And true disciples learn to submit to Jesus' commands over time, and they become people who are known to be people who hear Jesus, and they understand what he says, and they obey it and put it into practice. Now this morning, I want to pick up from where I left off last week. If you weren't here last week, then you sort of need to hear that sermon as a preliminary to this one. So I encourage you to, to listen to that online if you missed that. But I want to direct your attention to how do we implement this third component of ministry essentials in making disciples. And I'm going to try to answer this question. How did Jesus' disciples, how did his apostles take what he commanded them, and how did they put that into practice? How did they carry out his commission to teach uh, the disciples to observe all that he had commanded them? So I'm going to look at briefly that component, and then I'm going to ask the question, how are we? How can we put that into practice here in the 21st century rather than just the first century? So the first point here of your outline is that we're going to answer the question regarding apostolic implementation. How did the apostles implement the idea of teaching others to observe and to think and to act like Jesus in the first century? Well, we're going to consider, first of all, the apostle Paul. You say, why did you pick Paul? 
Because isn't it true that Paul was not present here when Jesus said in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples? That's true. He was not there. Um, Paul does not seem to come onto the scene until the stoning of Stephen in the book of Acts. And then later on, we read about his disciple-making ministry beginning there as a result of his dramatic conversion in Acts chapter 9. And in that, at that conversion, Paul was commissioned to bear the name of Jesus to the Gentiles. Chapter 9, verse 15 of Acts. And Luke, in his account of what happened in the early church, seems to take a wide view of what was happening with Peter and various other spiritual leaders there in the early church. Then he seems to change the focus a little bit longer on Peter, and then he begins to zoom in on the Apostle Paul. And that's one of the reasons I'm focusing on him today is because so much of the New Testament uh, contains the record of the disciple-making ministry of the Apostle Paul. Now look at Acts chapter 15, verse 35 as an example of what I'm talking about here. Acts 15, 35, we have a record of Luke's description of the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. Acts 15.35 we read, Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. Now notice that these two missionaries instructed their converts in the word. And I'm going to assume it doesn't just mean Hebrew scriptures, I'm going to assume it also means in the teachings of Jesus. Because it's clear that they're emphasizing Jesus' instruction and his teaching as they are seeking to build disciples. Now, as you know, Paul came to a point in his ministry where he had finished the first trip. He's getting ready to go on a second trip. And he and Barnabas are meeting together. And Barnabas says, hey, I want to bring my cousin again, John Mark, even though John Mark was a part of the first trip for a very short time. And Paul says, mm -mm, uh, I'm not agreeing on that. Uh, we're going to divide our ways here. You go ahead and do what you're going to do, but I'm going to go this direction. And he picks Silas to go on to the visits on the second and third missionary journey. And look at verses 41 of chapter 15. And also in chapter 16, verse 5, we read an interesting comment about the nature of the second trip in which Paul and now Silas are going to revisit some of the towns where they've already been and established churches. Notice what we read. They went there to strengthen those churches to strengthen the churches that have already been planted and the believers who are there already attending these small gatherings of converts. So new believers, clearly, according to the pattern which Paul followed along with there with, with Silas, new believers need to be taught. They need to be grounded in Jesus' teaching so that they can grow into full maturity. Now I'm going to talk about three different ways in which that teaching was manifested in Paul's disciple-making ministry. One of his first strategies was what we call, could call mentoring. Mentoring, one-on-one -on -one kind of ministry instruction of a younger believer. Paul invested a great deal of time and energy into a few younger men who eventually became leaders of the various churches. An example of this, of course, was Paul's recruitment of a young man in Acts chapter 16, verse 1, a guy by the name of Timothy. It was at the start of his second missionary journey. He brings Timothy on board, says, hey, come on with us and let's go together. 
And so Paul taught and encouraged Timothy so that he would be firmly grounded in the truth. On numerous occasions, Paul admonished timid Timothy not to give in to fear, not to be intimidated by those who oppose the truth. And Paul expected Timothy to invest himself in other men as Paul had invested himself into him and to therefore keep on taking what you've received and give it on to others. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Very important principle here on what it means to disciple, making disciples, instructing others. Look at the principle lived out in the Apostle Paul. He says, The things which you have heard from me, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, that is, when I came and ministered in churches, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Do you see the progress? Here's Paul. He imparts it to Timothy. Timothy is to teach it to others who are faithful, and they're to teach it to even others. And there you get the idea that Paul, in teaching Timothy the basic doctrines of the Christian faith and in the basic understandings of what it means to follow Jesus, that he challenges him then to impart those truths to other believers who will then entrust them to even others. And so that begs the question, is there a younger believer around you somewhere in your life? Is there someone that you know of who is younger in the faith than you are that you could spend time with in terms of offering words of encouragement, offering words of prayer with them occasionally, that you can ask them how they're doing, offer them some principles of things that you know you've learned in the Word that you can pass on to them, help them in an area perhaps they're struggling in, maybe something they're assuming is, ought to be happening in their life is not happening. You can show them in the Word. Listen, this is normal. This is what everybody struggles with. This is another principle how Jesus can find hope in the Gospel. Do you offer some words of encouragement, some words of challenge into the life of someone around you who is younger in the faith? You say, oh, well, I can't teach them anything. I don't have... Wait a minute. This is the principle of what Paul did. He shared with others, and Jesus is saying, we're to be those who make disciples. You have something you can teach them. Even if it's something that you think you've learned, you've learned yourself, you don't have to be able to teach a class. You're just talking to people about your faith in Jesus, what he's teaching you. You can impart that and help another younger believer. What a difference it makes to have somebody who's asking you, how are you doing? How is your walk with Christ? Is there some way I can pray for you? Those kind of questions may not seem very challenging or very profound, but I assure you those are the opening the doors in which many opportunities for one-on-one discipleship, one-on-one mentoring can really open up and provide many ways of practical help and encouragement. Paul encouraged and urged Timothy to be sure the gospel that he had entrusted to him would be faithfully proclaimed and lived out. You can look at 2 Timothy 1, verse 14, or 1 Timothy 6, 20. He, He was very concerned. Listen, I've entrusted to you these things. I want you to be sure to carry them forward. What are you entrusting to others around you? Are you entrusting them principles of truth that you have learned and that you're passing them on to others? Another strategy Paul adopted to fulfill the goal of making disciples, our second area of strategy, would be not only mentoring, but now in modeling. Modeling. I'm not talking about wearing clothes and walking down, you know, the walkway here. I'm not talking about that kind of modeling, okay? That's where a lot of your minds, I'm sure, just went. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your life being lived in such a way that people can see and watch you live out. Uh, what it means to follow Christ. 
You see, Paul knows that it's not just merely imparting to people uh, biblical and theological truths. That doesn't necessarily result in someone becoming a disciple who's obeying Jesus. People can learn a lot of things in their minds, but that doesn't always translate down into someone who desires to put those things in practice and live them out. See, on a number of occasions, Paul admonished those that he taught to watch him and to watch how he lived and to see that he has a commitment to Christ that manifests itself in his everyday life. What a powerful principle that is in impacting the lives of people around us. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 1. I'll give you a minute. You can look it up. It's okay. I'm hearing a couple pages open. That's good. I wonder if you could say these words to the people that you know in your life, to your fellow fellow members here in our church family, to the people in your own family. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me. You say, oh, don't don't live the way I live. No, no, don't don't watch me now. You keep your eyes on somebody else. Watch the the guy who teaches your Sunday school class. No, no. Paul says, be imitators of me just as I am an imitator of Christ. So in the areas of my life where I am living as a person who imitates Christ, then you follow me as I do that. That's a great principle. It's a great pattern, a way of imparting to somebody else to teach them with your life. He said the same thing to the Philippian believers in chapter 4, verse 9 of the book of Philippians. The things that you've learned and received and heard and what? Seen in me practice these things. What a practical, wonderful way to impact lives. Now, you say, what's the problem with this? Well, here's a concern I have. That powerful principle of watching you live out your life before the people around you, what happens to the impact of our teaching when what we say is undermined by how we live? More than likely, the person that we intend to disciple will not listen very carefully to our instruction if our way of life contradicts our words. And so Paul knew that young Timothy would never gain a hearing from others if he was not following Jesus in the way he lived life every day. And so look at his instruction to his young mentor in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. 1 Timothy 4, 11 and 12. Page 1,411 in your pew Bible. You see, Paul is not just about saying, I want you to know certain concepts in your mind that's important but he says i want you also to be realizing that your life has a powerful impact on other people around you he says in first timothy 4 11, keep commanding and teaching these things let no one look down on your youthfulness but rather in speech conduct love faith and purity Show yourself an example of those who believe. Show yourself an example. What does that mean? It means that if I'm going to have an impact on people around me, I need to deal with the areas of my life where there may be impurity. I need to deal with the areas of my life where I'm not trusting God. That my faith is not leaving me to take 
take steps of, of uh, risk in my life out of my faith for Christ in, in terms of my conduct, how I, how I interact with other people, what I choose to do with myself and my time, how I speak. Is what I say to other people, does that cause them to see and appreciate Christ more? Or does that cause them to become more cynical of the church as I talk about everybody else and all their problems and all the criticisms and gossip of other people? What I do in my life makes a huge impact with those around me in terms of my life. And Paul says, listen, Timothy, even though you're inexperienced, you haven't been down the road very far in life. You don't have a very long resume of accomplishments. He says, don't let people look down on you and think that you have nothing to offer. Live a life that will make an impact on other people by how you choose to follow Christ. When everybody and their sister is drinking from the well of pornography, Timothy, you live a life of purity. Stand clean of that as best you can. When other people are taking their words and they speak in such a way in which their language is foul language and using all kinds of curse words, you use your speech in a way that builds up people that season with grace. Tremendous opportunities. If you're a committed believer of Christ, if you're a disciple, your life just in doing the simple things of following Christ, they're going to be a huge impact to people around. They're going to go, what's with you, man? How is it that you do that? Because you're going to be swimming up against the stream, man. I'm telling you, the longer we live, the longer more the corrupt the culture becomes, the more obvious a person like Daniel who takes their stand, they will clearly have opportunities to help people understand the difference in my life is Christ. He's changed me. He's given me new desires. And I'm living for Him because He loves me so much. It's powerful. And Paul knew that. Verse 15. 1 Timothy 4, 15. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. That begs the question, too, in my mind, is there any progress in your life? Some of us who have known Christ for a while, is there any progress you're making in your walk with Christ? Have you learned anything? Is God teaching anything? Are you seeing areas of your life where you realize, I, you know, I need to see the Lord help me in this area. There's some areas I need to change and modify. The Lord's really convicting me right now in prayer. My prayer life is, is not where I want it to be, and I'm realizing that more and more I've got to take steps to take more initiative in that area, not just go with what I've always done. I need to become a person who's more passionate about seeking God and trusting Him to do the impossible and to step out in faith more and more. Before disciples can be properly taught, a love for Christ must be caught. And I think that that's a powerful principle in terms of how they see you live your life. If they sense a love for Christ that shows its way in practical ways, a person is going to say, wow, I'm listening to what this guy says. I'm listening to what this woman says. Paul's approach with the Thessalonian believers. Interesting. He summarized it in chapter 2 of his first epistle. This is what he says about his approach to ministry among the believers in Thessalonica. Having thus fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you, now what did he give to them? We impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Isn't that interesting? It wasn't just enough to speak to them truth into their life. He says, we showed you and manifested in living our lives before you how much we cared for you. You are witnesses and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. 
just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father with his own children so that you may walk or that you may live in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Did you catch all that? Paul says, we spoke truth in your life. We lived out our lives and gave you our lives and served you and showed you in our lives how much we cared for you. And then we continue to speak into your life encouragements to do the things that we're hoping that God would have you do. And those that we strive to disciple would be much more likely to listen if we live lives that convey sincerity, unselfish love, and a devotion to Jesus Christ that shows that He is the one that's supreme in our desires and our affections and in our pursuits. I would suggest to you that hypocrisy is one of the great breakers of the universal joint within the church of Jesus Christ. Is that when people are saying one thing, they look good on the outside, they're smiling, they're sitting there on a Sunday morning, they got their Bible, they look like they're really in the game, and yet they're totally disengaged from Christ in a vital way, in making a difference in their lives. They're not investing themselves in anybody else's life in a spiritual way. They're just sort of consumed with just doing their own thing. I would suggest to you that's one of the serious hindrances. And Paul says, listen, realize that your life can make a powerful difference in somebody else's as you live for Christ. So there's mentoring. And then he said also there is the modeling. And thirdly, a part, a third strategy that Paul incorporated in making disciples through teaching is to use memorable messages. Memorable messages. Now, this is a little different here because Paul was an apostle. And so when he's writing a letter, it has a little bit different content and weight than what you and I might write. But Paul wrote to the believers of these newly established churches in order to answer the questions that they had, to warn them about concerns that they were facing, to make sure they were established and grounded in Christ. How many of his New Testament books were written by Paul? Who knows that answer? Take a guess, somebody. Thirteen. Thirteen books were the letters that Paul wrote to individuals and to churches. And that is the fruit of his desire to impart into someone else's life ways in which they can learn and grow, go back to it, have these things read and reread. And here's the summary of what Paul did in terms of all of his teaching. Colossians 1.27. He says, We proclaim Christ, admonishing every person and teaching every person with all wisdom that we may present every person complete in Christ or mature in Christ. What a great goal Paul had. He said, I want to be sure I speak into your life and write in such a way with memorable messages so that your life will become mature as a believer in Christ. And so Paul composed these letters and memorable messages to instruct younger guys in the faith like Timothy and Titus. He even wrote one to Philemon, uh, speaking to an issue in his life about how to deal with a relationship that had gone sour. Now it's different because the gospel has changed uh, Onesimus. And so he's saying, look, let's work this thing out in the context of the church. He also is then trying to develop people who have Christ-like character. Now listen to some of the topics if, if Paul talks about them. One other thing I want to talk about, his memorable messages were things that he included 
on dealing with many different subject matters. This is where I think it would be helpful for us to think as Christians to realize the gospel speaks on a lot of different issues in life. It's not just about reading your Bible and avoiding certain things. The Bible speaks to many principles on how to work the gospel out in everyday life. Listen to some of the issues that he had to deal with. He dealt with false teachers in the church. He dealt with Christians who were bringing lawsuits against other Christians, taking them to court, saying, you owe me. He's dealing with the fact that there were uh, uh, Christians who were recently coming out of cult worship with the idols, and they were saying, listen, I'm not eating meat that was offered to that, those idols, even though there's nothing wrong with that meat and was sold in the market. I'm not eating it because I am making a complete break with that idolatrous worship I used to be a part of. I'm a follower of Christ now. And he speaks the issue of how do you deal with a brother who says, I'm not doing that anymore. He also is dealing with the issue of how to conduct yourself in the local church. Principles for married couples. Principles for parents. Principles for singles. How do you deal with a person who is not married in the local church? How do we deal with children relating to civil authorities? Uh, What happens if you have unjust suffering in your life? Somebody's doing something to you that's not right and not fair. He dealt with a number of issues. I've just begun to uh, skim over a a number of huge issues that that pertain to the idea of learning how to take the gospel and the truth of following Jesus and work it out in everyday life. And Paul assumed that his spiritual children would not remain as spiritual infants. He wrote them memorable messages so that he could move them toward maturity. And he agonized like a mother in labor pains until Christ was formed in those he sought to be disciples. Folks, being a person who speaks memorable messages and getting people into the Word of God is oftentimes an agonizing process just like it is in labor. It's not pleasant at all. There are times when you're going to have to go after a person again and again. You're going to have to rebuke them to their face. They're not going to want to hear what you have to say to them. There's going to be times when you have to put up with the failings once, the failings twice. You have to continue to show them the love of Christ. And the principle there is what? I'm agonizing till I see Christ formed in you, until you are moving toward ahead and maturing in the faith. And so he spoke these powerful words and messages into their life. When's the last time you mentioned a scripture passage to somebody in a memorable way that they could go to and hear it again and again in a way that really made an impact on them? Sometimes it does take writing something to someone. Sometimes it's a a, a well-thought-through email. Sometimes it's an actual card or a letter in which you articulate and express some things to somebody so slow down and read it and really take it to heart. You know, as 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 a person that you look at someone around you that you want to impart into them, sometimes the way in which you take the time to put the message there oftentimes will be, to some extent, the way in which God will impact that life with that message. Well, there's many things we could talk about. I wanted to bring now down to the practical part here in point number two. Instead of looking at apostolic implementation, let's look at contemporary implementation. Let's talk about today. Instructing modern-day disciples to think and act like Jesus. I want to just answer the question, how do we translate these principles into modern-day situations of life right here where you live and where I live every day? What are some practical ways we can put Jesus' commission into action 
now so that we don't have the breaking of the universal joint. So we don't just stay busy as a Christian, but we're not busy transferring the things that God is doing in my life into somebody else's life so that they can get moving and we can see the commission of Christ being fulfilled among us. Well, I'd like to talk first of all about even this the principle of children in an actual family so that we're talking to parents and how they impact their children. I'd also like to take it and want you to think through if you don't have children or if children are not around you anymore and you're, or they're all grown and launched. I'd like to think of spiritual children, which is Paul, how he thought of his own uh, son, Timothy, in the faith. I'd like you to think about those who are younger around you that you can invest in their lives spiritually or the literal children around you as human parents. Parents are given a privilege and responsibility to teach and instruct our children. So that why? So that our children will gain a biblical worldview. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, where Paul urged parents to bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's the concept there, instruction, teaching. I have found over the years that the reading and rereading of Ted Tripp's book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, has some very helpful principles that I think too many of us as parents, I know I uh, did not uh, inculcate this as well as I could have and should have looking back on life, that in his book, his principles on what he calls formative instruction. Formative instruction. This is not what you say to a child when the child has misbehaved. That's dealing with a whole other, that's dealing with uh, corrective discipline. This is formative instruction. Formative instruction is what you say to the child when everything's fine. When the child is, is not uh, involved in anything that is requiring any correction. And it, formative instruction is what can be done throughout the time of interaction with this child in one of the most important roles because what we're doing is we're trying to help that child and paint a picture for that child of the world where Jesus is king over everything. And that they begin to understand that Jesus is really the goal for life. That everything is to be glory to God. And therefore, in all we do, we can do for the glory of God. And so you sort of paint that picture for your child to understand and see that. And, and uh, Tripp says in his book, page 100, he says, The more you talk with your children, helping them to understand themselves and their temptations, their fears, their doubts, the more you're going to prepare them to understand life in this world. And so you go on and talk about there's formal formative instruction, there's informal formative instruction. There are the times where you sit down purposely to say, we're going to read the Word, we're going to talk about the Word today, we're going to do these things in a formal way. And then there's when you're in the car driving around, you turn the radio off, and it's an opportunity to engage in conversation, talking about the fact that God, God has made all things. God wants us to, uh, to remember He has certain ways of dealing with the problems of our world. And those long-term conversations help kids get beyond just the immediate issues to think more long-term about what is the real scope and purpose of life. It's a laying the foundation for understanding everything that that child will be doing later in life is to give them a firm foundation to see and understand what is really important in life. Interpreting life so that they might understand and provide a worldview. Now, unfortunately, too many parents don't do this. Therefore, when they seek to do corrective discipline, they're not seeing a response. The child doesn't get it. He doesn't see the principles of how that's connected vitally to formative instruction. 
If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 2, in the Scripture reading we read this morning, it's interesting that the concept that God wanted His people to have as they were now, in a sense, He married them at Sinai, children of Israel, He says to them, listen, I want you as my people to not just be concerned with daily survival, not the tyranny of the urgent and things that happen in just the moment. I want you to have a mindset that says, I want you to think into the future. I want you to be concerned not only with your life and where you are right now spiritually, but with your children and your grandchildren. I want you to think about a heritage and what you're doing now can have a difference way down the road. That's a discipleship mentality. And so far too many of us, I think, are so conscious of dealing with the moment here and busyness of life that we never seize the opportunity of laying that foundation of formative instruction, helping them understand God and His ways. Helping your children realize that the reason that they exist and that the reason they are like the way they are is because they've been wired to be worshipers. We all worship something or somebody. And the question is, who are you going to worship? What are you going to worship? In the process of our, our interaction with our children, he talks about there's a time for encouragement. Too many parents never speak words of encouragement to their children. All they hear is their children. When their children are doing wrong, that's when the parents engage. They need to speak words of encouragement, words of warning. They need to hear the warnings of Scripture. Proverbs 13, he who ignores discipline comes to poverty and shame. Or pride goes before destruction, Proverbs 16. The warning of a harsh word stirs up anger, Proverbs 15. Along with the words we give to our children as formative instruction is the word of correction. We help them see this is the correct way to deal with life and challenges and situations. Giving them insight of what may have been wrong and showing them the right way. And also entreaty, where we, where we urge and plead with our children to come and listen to what I'm saying to you. I want your heart in this matter. Proverbs 23 starts off and says, My son, give me your heart. Don't just take these things lightly. We must engage our children in ongoing conversations about why sexual sins like pornography are to be avoided at all costs. And we must remember, as our messages will never be memorable if we're not modeling the truth that we're seeking to pass on to our children. And part of that is our children need to hear us make a confession of our acknowledging failures. They need to hear us say, you know, I need to ask you to forgive me because what I just said to you was done out of anger and a lot of what I had to say was out of control and only because I was annoyed because my world and what I want wasn't going my way. And I was worshiping my own comforts rather than being in tune and loving you and loving God at that moment. I want to ask you to forgive me. That's powerful when you, a parent will humble himself and say, listen, I've got to live before God too. I need grace. You need grace as well. Our children are not going to listen if they see us consistently living as hypocrites who say one thing and yet we do another. Of seeing us as people who affirm one thing on Sunday, but we live an entirely different way Monday through Saturday. And so the calls to us as parents and to those around us as spiritual parents for those of, who are spiritual children around us, we can make a huge difference in speaking in their lives formative instruction. I'd like to also seek to expand this application in another realm of our church life. I'd like to suggest to you that another means of discipleship, another means of making disciples and instructing each other 
in such a way that we follow Jesus can happen in the context of a growth group. And this is an interesting model because when you think about it, it's not one-on-one. There is some modeling involved, yes, and there are some memorable messages perhaps spoken in that, that context, but it also is, a, is another model for us in a sense. It's, it's like we've taken one-on-one and we've taken one person who is now involved and immersed in one community, <laughs> in one group of believers who are different. So I, it's one person in the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is speaking and ministering to each other in ways that cannot be done. And, and cannot be uh, copied by a one-on-one relationship. And that's the beautiful thing about a small group, is that different members of that group are bringing different things into that mix, and we all need that. It's like being in a family, where a family can help us with our struggles, as well as ju- rejoining us when we rejoice. I came across a quote that I put in your notes here, at the end of your page there, in which I find... The, the, what I would hope would happen in the context of a small group, a growth group, is that we would not only acquire biblical truths and concepts, but we would apply those truths to our lives as a community, as people who are learning and struggling and helping and growing and praying for each other in such a way that we would become aware that we are more sinful than we realized. If you're in a community... We need to know that we are more sinful than we realize. We need to acknowledge that and talk about that, the struggles that we face. We're more sinful than we realize, but we are more loved than we've ever dreamed. God's love is our hope. And the love we have in the body of Christ is such a, a, a medicine for our sin-sick souls, our self-focused souls. In the context of a small group, we can admit our struggles, we can share our joys, We can lift each other up in prayer. We can speak into each other's lives with the broader purpose, the broader goal of accomplishing Galatians 6.1. Let me just show you what happens in Galatians 6.1. Paul concludes his his concerns of the church there in Galatia that had a lot of false teaching, a lot of destruction of the gospel by adding things to the gospel. You have to do this, you have to do this, legalism. And he says, listen, I'm concerned about the community life among you. And he says, brethren... Even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, he is not talking about the church leadership here. He is not talking about the elders and deacons only. He is not talking about the people who are the Sunday school superintendent or the people who have the positions that are voted on every year at the annual meeting. He says, you who are spiritual, goes right back up to the verse previous to that, chapter 5, is people who are walking in the Spirit, who have the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. People who are in step with the Holy Spirit. He says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourselves, lest you, too, be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Do you see how it's the one anothering? It's the one anothering. And so we acknowledge the person who is broke, has fallen off into some pattern of sin in their life, but the body of Christ ministers to, to get them restored, get them to be built up in the faith. That's part of discipleship. And there are many people who never want to go into a small group and be open and vulnerable and acknowledge their struggles because of pride and because they don't want to be hurt and because they don't want to have anything exposed in their life that they'll have to change or deal with. And so many times people resist that kind of a setting and therefore what? They miss out on the next step of their discipleship growth and advancement. 
because they're off living as a lone ranger, trying to follow Jesus. Just me and Jesus living the Christian life. It was never designed that way, my friend. You will grow in the context of community where we humbly acknowledge our need for Christ, where we preach the gospel to each other every day, and where we find the love of Christ is lived out in a real, vital, and God-honoring way. May that be true of us. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Lord, it is my prayer today that if there's here today someone who has chosen to follow Christ, I would pray that you would help them, Father, to purpose in their heart to take seriously what Jesus is saying to them, to follow Jesus, not just learn about Jesus, not just know a lot of facts about Jesus and be able to recite what Jesus said to them, but Lord, I pray that they would have a, a heart that is passionate about following Jesus in their love, in their conduct, in their speech, in their purity of life. Lord, I pray that it would be translated into a, a way of life and I pray, Father, that you would help those of us who are following you, to Lord Jesus, to realize our lives can be a huge impact on those around us as we follow Jesus. Help us, Lord. Help us to be real. Help us to be genuine. Help us not to try to be like other people. Just help us to live before Jesus every day and follow Him. And Lord, I pray also for the opportunities we have to invest in someone younger in the faith around us a child in the faith. Lord, help us to speak words of encouragement and hope and correction, even rebuke if necessary, Lord. Help us to show them the love of Christ. Help, them, help us to point them into the, to the memorable messages of the New Testament, of the teachings of Jesus, that they might find hope and, and clarity and, and, and that they might see, Lord, what you're desiring them to understand through the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray for those of us who do have families that we might see that as a growth group where there can be open sharing and care, encouragement, helping each other to be built up, helping us, Lord, to live out the gospel with each other. And we pray, Lord, for every growth group we have and for those who are still on the sidelines, Lord, help them to take a step to say, I want to be a part of a community. I want to grow. I want to be a growing disciple. I want to be someone who's learning not just about Jesus in my mind, but also in terms of how it means, what it means to live it out in community. Father, I pray that you give them courage to listen to the Spirit's call and to take a step that says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to follow Jesus where he leads me. We pray in his name. Amen.